40, verse 1 to 5. It's on page 724. 724. And if you're like me who can't read the, um, the Bible because it's too small, um, it's on the screen as well. Um, so yes, so 724, Isaiah 40, 1 to 5. God says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now we're going to read Luke 3. It's on page 1034, so 1034. We're going to read the whole chapter, a lot of names and places. Um, So page 1034. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowd that come out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, What then shall I do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came, also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, 
and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when John also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove and a voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus began his ministry. He was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of, Jesus, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Negai, the son of Maas, the son of Mathathias, the son of Semein, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Rishah, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kozem, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Saruk, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eba, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpasad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, 
the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thanks so much, Mona. That was very impressive to get through all of those names. Good morning, everyone. My name is Josh. Great to see you all. Uh, and as Hendry said, I'm very excited that I get to preach and then not have to run up to Wild Street, but actually stay. So it's great to be with you this morning. <clears throat> well, being prepared really matters. Uh, when Zoe, uh, my wife, was pregnant, we were getting ready for our daughter Marley to be born. The hospital put on birth preparation classes to get us prepared. Uh, we did two whole Zoom classes. Uh, we watched the horrifying videos, uh, and it made me think that I was prepared, that I could handle anything that that room could throw at me. Let me tell you, I was not prepared. Uh, it turns out watching a video and two Zoom classes does not make you ready for all the things that can and do happen in a birthing room. Uh, to not be prepared or to think that you're prepared and find out that you're not is a terrible thing. Being prepared matters. Uh, but as Jasper said, it depends on what you're preparing for, to how much it matters. Uh, in the end, we got through Marley's birth. The thing was, she was kind of coming whether we were ready or not, and it ended up fine. But for some things, to not be prepared or to think that you're prepared and find out you're not is truly devastating. Uh, two years ago, uh, a 76-year-old man set off for a month-long solo walk in Tasmania, and he never returned. Uh, when he was found, he had with him uh, a low-quality tent, a low-quality sleeping bag, inadequate clothing, and almost no wet-weather gear. Uh, this is the coroner's report. He said, It is very clear that this man was woefully ill-equipped for the bushwalk that he was undertaking. It's horrible. To not be prepared or to think that you're prepared for something and find out you're not can be absolutely destructive. And the passage we're looking at this morning wants to make sure that we are prepared for when the stakes are the highest. And we'll see that not being prepared is a matter of life and death. And we're going to see in the passage that there's many people who think they're prepared but ultimately are not. And so it's great that you're here this morning as we start our series in Luke and we look at chapter 3, being prepared matters deeply. So let's get stuck in. Point one, if you're a note taker, prepare for the Lord. Have a look at verse 1 with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anna and Caiaphas. The chapter starts with a bunch of years and names of religious and secular leaders, which kind of might seem a bit boring or unimportant to us, but it's significant for a bunch of reasons. But one is that it tells us that these things happened in real-world history among real historical people. In fact, it's incredible that from this list, uh, we can work out that the events that happened in this passage happened between 28 and 29 AD. It's incredible. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. 
this stuff really happened and it really matters. So what is it that really happened? Verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. God gave this guy, John, a word, a message for his people. Uh, It is hugely significant that the God of the universe would speak. But we realize it's even more significant than we think. Because at this point, God hasn't spoken to his people for 400 years. So why does he choose to speak now? What's the point of this word that God gives to John? Well, Luke quotes the Old Testament to explain it. Verse 4, the word of God came to John, uh, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of God came to John so that John would prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, At the time, there was a convention that when an important ruler or king was about to visit a city, uh, the people would go out and they'd kind of prepare the road. They'd make the road smooth. They'd make it wide so the king and his entourage could kind of answer with grandeur and ease. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in China for the Olympics, they spray-painted the grass green all the way from the airport to the stadiums. So when the foreign dignitaries kind of came through, it looked spectacular and even better. It's amazing, isn't it? The description here is like that, but on steroids. Worthy of the ruler of the universe. Huge valleys are filled in. Mountains are flattened to prepare for the arrival of the Lord. God speaks through John to say, I'm coming. You need to be prepared because I'm about to turn up. The holy and all-powerful ruler of the universe who made the infinite number of Milky Ways in the galaxy is turning up to earth. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Incredible. And for the people hearing this message through John 28, 29 AD, they needed to be ready. Because we see Jesus, the Lord Jesus, literally turns up in 15 verses, kind of to start his public ministry. They needed to be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. There's no more important person who could turn up, no more important thing you could be prepared for. But what about for us? John said this 1,995 years ago. Has the urgency to prepare or the need to kind of gone away? Do we need to prepare? Well, yes, Jesus has already come. But the Bible's also clear that he's also coming back. And either you could go to him or he could come to you at any moment. So we need to prepare. This is a truth that's true whether we acknowledge it or not. It's kind of like gravity. It doesn't really matter what you believe about gravity. Gravity is coming for you whether you believe it or not. I reckon that most of us, most of the time, I think live like this is not true that Jesus isn't coming back, or at least he's, he's not coming back soon. Either you've never thought about it before, and so of course you don't live in light of it, or we know in our heads that he is, but really we live like he's not. This is a hugely significant truth. The Lord is coming. Are you prepared? How do you know if you're prepared? 
or, or what would you do if you wanted to get prepared? Point two, prepare for the Lord by repenting. Have a look at verse three. The word of the Lord came to John, then verse three, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The point of John's message was to prepare for the Lord. And to do that, he told people, you must repent. Come and be baptized as a symbol of repentance that you've turned from sin, that you've been washed. The only way to be prepared is to repent. Now, this is a particularly sharp message when you realize who John's talking to. John is speaking to the Jews, God's covenant people. And he's telling them, you need to repent because you're not ready for the Lord. They would have been thinking, what do you mean I'm not prepared? Of course I am. I'm one of God's children. I'm Jewish. If anyone's prepared for the Lord to come, it's us. But do you see what John says to them? Verse 7. He said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John lays the smack down on them. He calls the Jews, You brood of vipers. Uh, now, brood means offspring. Uh, and they knew from the Old Testament that Satan is depicted as a snake. And so, what really John's saying is, you're not the offspring of God like you think you are. You are the offspring of Satan. To God's chosen people, he says, you're under the grip of Satan, children with his nature. And then before they can get a word in, John has a go at the thing that makes them confident that they think they're prepared for the Lord. Verse 8. Don't you dare say we have Abraham as our father, as though you think that could mean that you don't have to repent as though that could force God to show you mercy. John has a very sharp message. But again, what does it mean for us? We're not Jews. We live after Jesus' ministry, not before it. What would John say if he turned up to Botany this morning? Well, the hard but clear message of the Bible is that every single person is in the exact same situation. We have a nature that is at war with God, that we're rebels, we're sinners, we're under the ruling influence of Satan, and we are not prepared for the Lord to come because we are his enemies. If John rocked up to preach here today, I reckon he'd say something like, don't you dare point to what you think is your good life. It is nowhere near good enough. Don't you dare point to your Christian heritage, your baptism your church attendance to the ministries you serve in none of those things will force god to show you mercy don't put your confidence in the wrong things no john says repent so what is repenting it's a bit of a weird religious word that we don't ever use it goodbye any other time let's have a quick look at what repentance isn't and then have a look at what it is what repentance is not, it's not knowing the facts about God or Jesus and then taking no action. That's not repentance. It's not 
diminishing sin, thinking, oh, I just do some dumb stuff, but it's not that bad. No, sin is deeply offensive to God. Sin is not manipulate. sorry, repentance is not manipulating God, saying that God, if I stop this for you, then I want you to do this for me. Repentance is not hating getting caught in sin. Do you hate getting caught in sin or do you hate sin? That's what repentance isn't. But what is it? Three things to say about repentance. What is it? Firstly, it's turning. Uh, Flick back one page, chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, Here, this is before John was born, and an angel is telling John's dad what John will do in his life. Have a look at verse 16. (coughs) And he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. To repent is to turn. It's to turn away from sin and turn to God, to trusting God, to living for him. To repent, you see, is to turn. Second, there's repentance that saves and repentance that continues. See, at one level, repentance is is a one-time only thing. We were living a life to sin and away from God, but God in his love compels us to turn to him, to trust him, to live for him, and he'll never let us go. You repent once. So why does the Bible then call us to live a life of ongoing repentance? Well, it's because Christians continue to sin. A Christian is freed from the guilt of sin, but not from the presence of sin. It's not that you stop feeling guilty. It's that you're declared not guilty before God. You don't need to keep repenting as if you come in and out of God's grace and His love, but we continually repent because sin continues in our lives and so there's repentance that saves and repentance that continues the third thing is that genuine repentance results in obvious change have a look at verse 8 bear fruits in keeping with repentance john doesn't just say repent he says bear fruits in keeping with repentance Genuine repentance is something you can see, like fruit that hangs off a tree. Uh, John gives some examples of what the fruits of repentance look like. Uh, When the crowds are cut to the heart and they ask, what shall we do? Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, (coughs) Collect no more than you were authorized to. And soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages." Did you notice what is common to what John said to each of the three groups? Did you notice? It's all to do with money and possessions. The person who has two tunics, who has more than they need, is to generously share. 
and you realize it's far more generous than you realize when you read the footnote next to tunic. It's not an outer layer, it's an undergarment worn under the skin, sorry, under the coat next to the skin. Now, I don't want your sweaty singlet or your undies, but John says how you use your money, how you use your stuff, it's a powerful indicator of if we've genuinely repented. It's not that money and possessions is the only sphere of life repentance will affect, but John seems to think that if someone looked at your bank statements, if someone saw your possessions and and how you use them, it would be obvious to see if you've repented. To repent is to turn, to turn from sin to God, to trust Him, to live for Him. There's repentance that saves, there's repentance that continues, and genuine repentance will always be seen. It bears fruit, it results in obvious change. But why is it such a big deal? Why is repenting so important that this is the one thing that you need to do to prepare? Point three. Because Jesus is the Lord who will judge. If you had to describe what you think Jesus is like, what would you say? If you had to draw a picture of what you think Jesus is like, what would you draw? I bet it's not how, Je- how John describes and pictures, pictures Jesus here. Have a look at verse, uh, verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Have a look down at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In one hand, he's pictured as holding an axe, ready to bring judgment on and throw into the fire any person who doesn't bear the fruits of repentance. And in the other hand, he has a winnowing fork, a tool that used to separate the good wheat grain from the useless husk and chaff which he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is, Jesus will separate those who haven't and those who have repented, and unfathomable judgment will come. It is absolutely harrowing, isn't it? It's a horrific description. It is life and death forever. Jesus is the Lord who will judge to not be prepared for him or to think you're prepared and then find out you're not is absolutely devastating. Repenting is so important because Jesus is the Lord who will judge. And repenting is the one thing that determines whether you'll escape his judgment or not. It's heavy stuff, right? And it sounds like bad news. But have a look at how Luke, the author, describes this news. Verse 19. So with many other exhortations, he, that's John, preached good news to the people. Luke says that this is John preaching good news. How? Well, it's good because he's telling you in advance. God doesn't want you to be thrown into the fire. He's telling you about judgment so that you can prepare. 
So that verse 6, you can see the salvation of God. The axe is kind of resting at the bottom of the tree, but he hasn't swung yet. You need to repent because the Lord is coming. The Lord Jesus is coming and he will judge. You need to repent. But the amazing news is that you can repent because the Lord Jesus is also the Son who saves. He's the Lord who will judge, but point four, he's also the Son who will save. In the last bit of the passage, we see Jesus' desire to save and his qualifications to save. Verse 21, his desire to save. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Have you ever wondered, why was Jesus baptized? John said that his baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Was Jesus sinful? No, the Bible's very clear. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, it symbolizes at least two things. First, in being baptized, Jesus identified with us as sinners, preparing to die on our behalf. Notice in the details that Jesus isn't out getting baptized on his own. It was when all the people were being baptized. There was actually something significant going on horizontally at Jesus' baptism. He was identifying with sinners as he was baptized between tax collector and tax collector. You see his desire to save. And second, Jesus' baptism is a symbol that points forward to his death and his resurrection. See, the word baptism didn't originally mean this kind of ceremony we do where we pour water on someone. Uh, To baptize meant to sink under the water. So when a boat would sink, that was a baptism. Gone under. Dead. Jesus' baptism points forward to the day where he would go under to his death to bear the wrath and judgment of God. And three days later, to rise to life and offer forgiveness to anyone who would turn to him. See, in Jesus' baptism, we see his desire to save. He was preparing from it right from the very start. And then we see his qualifications to save. See, how can Jesus save us? One, because he's a man with whom God is well pleased. And two, because he's the son of God who deals with God's wrath. So first, he's a man with whom God was well pleased. Uh, See, Luke is at pains to let us know that Jesus is a man with a human origin. Uh, Mona kind of read from verse 23, a genealogy. 77 human names, the perfect number of human fathers. Jesus is a human man. Did you get it? All the methotheses. Why does that matter? Because Jesus has to be a human in order to save us. See, the penalty for sin is a debt that humans owe God. Only a human can pay the price for the sin of mankind. But it's actually more than that. In order to pay for the sin of mankind, it's got to be a human who's also sinless. Because a person who sins can only pay for their own sins. You've got to be sinless if you're going to deal with the sins of others, which is a huge problem. Because throughout the history of the Bible and the world, there is no one person with whom God can say, I am well pleased. You don't see it in the rest of the Bible until Jesus. There is no one who's totally sinless. No one who's free from the grip, of inf- uh, from the grip and influence of Satan. And then verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him, Jesus, 
in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The voice of God at Jesus' baptism declares for all to hear that Jesus alone is pleasing to God. This is huge. Jesus has to be sinless and he has to be a man in order to deal with our sins and he is. It's incredible. And yet, even that's not enough. He's a man with whom God is well pleased and he's the son of God who deals with God's wrath. At Jesus' baptism, God also declares, you are my son. And in Jesus' genealogy, you get 77 human names and then ultimately, did you see the name it traces back to? Verse 38, son of God. Jesus is the son of God. He's not just of God, he is God, which matters deeply for a bunch of reasons, but for our salvation, he must be God because while sin has to be paid for by a human, there is no mere human who could ever bear and fully satisfy God's wrath for us. Only Jesus, as the divine son, is of, uh, could sacrifice of infinite and eternal worth to deal with God's wrath. And only by being God is he able to rise to life again. So we too can be raised to life with him. Do you see? Jesus is perfectly qualified to save. He's the man with whom God is well pleased. And he's the divine son who deals with God's wrath. And his desire is to save you. And so Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who will judge, so you must repent. But he's also the son who saves, so you can repent. He's the Lord who will judge, so you must repent. But he's the son who saves, so you can repent. You can turn from sin. You can turn to him and trust him. He's done everything so you can be forgiven and saved. So are you prepared? Are you prepared for the Lord Jesus to come? Have you repented? I imagine there's three kinds of people who are here this morning. Uh, there will be those of you who know that you haven't repented. Do you want to prepare for the Lord Jesus to come? You've heard that he's coming, that he's bringing devastating judgment. But you've also heard that he's done everything so you can be saved. So, will you turn from sin? Will you turn to Jesus? Will you repent? Will you trust him? The second group of people are those who haven't truly repented. Uh, maybe you've got others convinced that you've turned to Jesus. Maybe you even try to convince yourself but you haven't convinced God. Now, the danger with me saying this is that those with a sensitive conscience who genuinely have repented, you will hear this and think this is you. What you need to hear is that it doesn't matter how messed up your life is, if you cling to Jesus as your only hope, that's it. But if you have ongoing unrepentant sin in your life that you don't wrestle or struggle with, that you're not trying to turn from, if there's no fruit, if there's no evidence of change in your life, John says, you're in real danger. You might think you're prepared for the Lord Jesus to come, but you're not. If that is you, repent. Turn. Come to Jesus. He's waiting with open arms for you. 
The last group are those who have truly repented. And if that's you, give thanks. That by nature you are a child of Satan, but by what Jesus has done, you're a child of God. Give thanks. And continue to live a life of ongoing repentance. As you plan for 2023, I'm sure you've made plans for holidays and for family and for what you're going to do. Are you planning for how you continue to bear the fruits of repentance? That is at the core of what God wants for you this year. It's kind of easy to slow down or stop changing entirely, right? You become a Christian at first and there's massive change initially and then five years down the track, 10 years, 15, are you bearing the fruits of repentance? Is there still change in your life? If not, my gentle question is, do you think that there's not much sin that you have left to turn from? Will 2023 be a year that you continue in repentance? That is what God wants for your life. Continue to be prepared. Because we all need to be prepared for the Lord. He's coming. And the only way to repair, prepare is by repenting. Because Jesus is the Lord who will judge and he's the Son who will save. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy and powerful, almighty, good, the ruler of all things. We are blown away that you would let us prepare, that you would tell us and do everything that we can to prepare for, prepare for your coming. Thank you that you deal in justice, that you don't let evil go unpunished, but that for the evil that is in our hearts, you would send your Son to identify with us, to save us, to die and rise so we can have life. We pray that we might, prepared, we might be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus by turning to him, by trusting in everything that he's done for us. And that as we continue to live the Christian life, we pray that we would ongoingly repent, that we would have hearts that honour you and seek to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.